I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR. Welcome to Friday, and welcome to KUOW's Week in Review. I'm Bill Radke. Will Seattle tax allegedly excessive CEO salaries? Just one of the questions we'll ask as we get you caught up on the week gone by. I've got South Seattle Emerald writer and reporter Lauren Bray here. Lauren, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Good to have you. Also political analyst and contributing columnist Joni Balter. Welcome back. Thank you so much. And KUOW politics reporter David Hyde. Good to see you too. Good to see you, Bill. We are streaming this show. We do have faces, so why not use them? You can uh, join us on YouTube or Facebook and watch the program any old time. Let's get out topic number one. Unfortunately, it is fire. You know, we've got one of America's biggest Hawaiian communities right here. Hawaii is a big travel destination for Seattle area folks. There's just a lot of heartache here over the fatal fires on Maui. At least 55 people have died Rescuers from King and Pierce County are there now. KUOW reporter Ann Dornfeld spoke with Hawaiian transplant Peter Buza, owner of Kauai Family Restaurant in Seattle's Georgetown neighborhood. I couldn't sleep last night just thinking. Buza's brother and sister-in-law's home in Lahaina Town is in ashes, he said. So is their car. Buza said it's heartbreaking to watch folks like his brother, a disabled veteran, go through one more hardship. He's lost everything in Maui. Nothing to go back to. Nothing. Lahaina is popular with tourists. I, I have I've been there as a tourist. But, it, uh, Joni, it's got a history that's much longer than the American presence. Yeah, I mean, look, Lahaina uh, was the historic heart of old, of old Hawaii. It goes back to the whaling industry days. And what this horrible event uh, tells you is that there's no getting away from climate change these days, this last year. Um, you know, even in paradise, we all think of it as like this, this kind of stuff doesn't happen uh, in Lahaina or Maui. And I learned a term this morning that I just found, what? I never heard this before. Do you know what a flash drought is? I don't. Uh, and I hadn't. So... This is supposedly one of the factors that happened. Everybody knows the story, knows that there was a hurricane offshore. But, and, and Maui had been lush up until, what, a couple weeks or a month ago. And then a flash drought hits, creating just these incredibly dry conditions. And so if a fire meets a hurric the winds of a hurricane at some distance offshore, that's how you have this sort of inexplicable event. It's just devastating. And Lauren, we touched briefly there on the uh, on history and and pre-American presence. And uh, to you, American presence of imperialism is part of this story. Yeah, I would say slightly so, at least. Um, I mean, going back to history, we basically annexed Hawaii, you know, violently so, kidnapped the queen and did all of this other, you know, colonizer things. And I think that we need to understand that, you know, indigenous Hawaiians have been asking for, you know, people from the greater part of America to stop coming, you know, and stop feeding the tourism industry, because essentially what has been happening over the past the last few decades is, you know, uh, money has been put into developing resorts, uh, constructing new buildings for, you know, aiding this tourism industry. And, you know, there, it hasn't allowed much room for affordable housing, and it's allowed to the displacement of indigenous Hawaiians. And, you know, it's it's very devastating to think that a lot of the people that are, you know, dying from these fires are people that live there and are indigenous to the island, whereas, you know, people who go and visit can go back home and be away from the fires. So. Right. That uh, Georgetown restaurant owner, Peter Buza, is holding a couple of fundraising events at uh, Kauai Family Restaurant to benefit people affected by the fires. Hawaiian officials asking people to delay non-essential travel there. Alaska Airlines letting people cancel or change flights for free. And David, you said you always bring it back to politics. Yeah, I mean, sort of compounding the, the tragedy that you're both talking about. 
to me is just, you know, we're constantly talking about climate change and pointing to the ways in which scientists know that the world is getting hotter, it's getting drier, there are more storms. So we know it's this background effect for all of those things and all the big hot fires we're seeing everywhere. But what's kind of frustrating to me is that most Americans say if you if you poll them that climate change is a huge problem it's yeah. it's widely recognized but the partisan split on that it's 8 in 10 democrats uh, and only 1 in 4 republicans mm-hmm. and what i don't hear anybody talking about almost is what's the political key to unlocking that problem cuz unless that problem gets fixed we can't get a national climate policy that's coherent. We can't get international agreements. And so as much as and as much as I love hearing, you know, this is how we solve climate change, this is what we need to do, we know an awful lot of that stuff. Let's do it. Politics is the answer um, as, as far as I'm concerned. And I just want to hear a lot more thought go into that and, and, and sort of solutions so that we can at least try to start kind of preventing more of these tragedies from occurring in the future. Yeah. And it's something that I call the Republican problem. It's the persistence in the face of fact, you know, and and just destroying the integrity of the truth to get, you know, a point across that is not really based in fact. So I think that that's part of it. You know, climate change for so many years was something Lots of people talked about, you know, in the summer or when there was a fire, and it was just sort of, oh, you know, we'll get to that eventually when we have time. But the last maybe year or two, it's not far off. The planet is appears to be burning, I mean, you know, in so many different things that have happened even just this summer. You know, the East Coast and Midwest didn't really have much familiarity for many, many years about the smoke or the presence of wildfires. They experienced the smoke this year from those fires in Canada. The East Coast, did you read about the temperatures and the waters off of Florida? And now we also, in, in our uh, on the West Coast, have another, uh, I think it's a five-degree increase in the temperature. It's not going to get as hot as, as the Atlantic, but it's going to f- affect weather. This is all right here, right now. And you're right, David, the pollux politics have to solve it. Uh, I think it's one fact that that is true is you have to kind of experience it as people, for example, in the Southwest did. All those days of 100 and 110 temperatures, if you experience it, then you're more likely to say, oh, whoa, this is not far off. This is right in my face right now. But I would take it a step further and I would say that you know, it's been so much denial of climate change, even before, you know, it being a far off problem. It was just, oh, that's not even real, you know, for a very long time. And then I would say to your point about experiencing it, Texas went through a really horrible climate change episode when, you know, it was a snowstorm, basically, and they weren't able to to cope with that at all. And so you would think that that would you know, shock a lot of people that are, you know, more right leaning. But you you never know. I think that's totally right. Um, but I see a lot of climate policy experts, you know, sort of tweeting to the choir about that. And you mean Xing to the choir? <laughs> Sorry, Xing to the choir about that. <laughs> and and kind of what I'm getting at is, okay, I, I there's a lot of misinformation out there. It's been out there for years. We know that. We know what the facts are, we know what the science says. Like, but what's the political solution then? How do we, if we can't convince everybody of every aspect of the science, how do we move forward? What yeah. can we agree on? Yeah. Like, because it's 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 a real problem. So mm-hmm. how do we get you know a coherent national climate policy and international agreements that everybody can agree to? I don't have any answers to it, but I just think I'd like to hear a lot more conversation. Well, about you know, how that the happens. states are trying to do some things, and then they like the state of Washington with its carbon. Uh, program is, you know, we're trying to do something. And then the headlines all all the last few weeks are we're paying the highest gas taxes in the country, which re- recently flipped to California paying the highest, but that doesn't really matter. So if states, if, if the federal government can't do enough, we hope, we want the states to be the laboratories mm-hmm. where they come up with ideas. But then sometimes those ideas, you know, aren't perfect. And it's certainly not perfect to have people paying the, the gas uh, prices that they are. And so but it that, is designed in part, isn't it, to raise the cost of emitting greenhouse gases, meaning raising the cost of gasoline. 
Yes, and exactly. And so then what you hear, you know, so there is a price to doing this. So you hear that um, think tanks and various institutes will say that our state, with our high gas prices and our carbon cap, uh, is one of the states most likely to, to meet the Paris guidelines. But it costs a lot. Costs because we've got the high gas incentive to buy electric cars or to drive less? Well, because because of what the cap does yeah. to that. Yes, you're right. And by the way, just right now, um, there is a movement to repeal that carbon uh, cap, the cap and invest system, right? Yes. Is that, does that, how, that, that's a, uh, an initiative backing campaign. How, is that really going to go through? Well, you never know because um, the the guy who who put this forward, a guy named Brian Haywood, um, is, has decided to use the initiative process. We have that in our state, and we've had uh, wealthy folks like himself come through before with ideas that either do or don't make it on the ballot. Uh, he's apparently now gathering signatures for um, an initiative to the legislature to undo the work that our state just did. Now, last year, this gentleman uh, offered up 11 conservative initiatives, and none of them got anywhere. He didn't didn't use paid signature gatherers, which helps with, if that's your goal, to get nowhere. But, uh, (laughs) you know, but this year, um, maybe more focused. Uh, and as you know, initiatives to the legislature go to the legislature. They either agree with them or send, an, um, send them on to the ballot a year from now. Right. Uh, and since we're now we've sort of segued into talking about uh, someone opposing a state charge. Is it, would you call it a tax, the cap and invest system? I don't know if, you, if that's technically a tax. But, um, but I bring this up because we also want to talk this week about the moves to tax people more in the city of Seattle, David, you wrote about this. The city is looking for new tax money to help cover a budget deficit. Who does Seattle want to tax? Yeah, so the city is looking at, it's forecasting huge budget holes starting in 2025, something like $221 million, and that's ongoing after mm-hmm. after a 2025 uh, if we don't, can fig- I just briefly ask why that is? What did something change? We're spending that- more than we're taking in. <laughs> That'll I mean, do it. Uh, that's the bottom line. Um, and so the city brought together a group of business leaders, labor leaders, civic leaders to try to come up with some ideas for how to solve that. Part of what they looked at was um, new progressive sources of revenue. And as you know, we don't have a. Uh, the ability to levy a progressive income tax here in Washington State under mm-hmm. the Supreme Court. So there were a bunch of a bunch of new ideas and some that were kind of interesting to me. One of which was this CEO uh, pay ratio tax. And so what it means is if if your CEO is getting paid this massive amount of money compared to the average worker for the company, we're going to levy some sort of business tax on you, which San Francisco apparently is already doing and it's generating. Ouch, San uh, Francisco. We yeah. should model San Francisco. Where we are following headache, San Francisco. Headache, we are following my stomach ache. Yeah. Um, I agree, Jimmy. So <laughs> what's interesting about it in part, and we were talking about this earlier, is just that CEO pay as an issue has become a symbol for growing inequality in the U.S. Um, I was looking at one study earlier that said back in the 60s, the ratio was something like 15 to 1. Mm. Now it's closer to 400 to 1. Um, the head of Microsoft makes something like $50 million a year. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a sort of moral concern or, you know, about the inequity at the heart of this. Unfortunately, I don't think if, if the goal would be to fix that, it's unlikely that Seattle's tax is going to cause, you know, Amazon or Microsoft or whoever to actually change their pay for CEOs. It doesn't doesn't really fix the labor market problem. Um, but I would want to uh, – I'm stopping one sec, but I wanted to bring up one other tax, which would – that's being proposed, which is a vacancy tax. So this is a, a tax on vacant properties. So if you're a real estate investor and you're sitting on, you know, I don't know, 50 apartments downtown or whatever, and they're not renting out – they're going to tax you, and presumably that would encourage people to go ahead and say, "At least I'm going to fill this unit." And you know, we've got this housing crisis at sort of all levels of the market. So, so that's one which would generate revenue and actually have that sort of impact potentially. Lauren, I want to hear from you about this. David, would you just uh, tell f- listeners, remind them why it is somebody would be would have a property and not be renting it out? I can't remind them because I'm not sure what the <laughs> answer to that is. I mean, I would think that. 
Yeah, I don't know. Why wouldn't you be renting it out or selling it? Um, but presumably they think that there are some of these properties. I mean, They're these are things. buying on spec. Yeah, and these They're are things. buying on spec and hoping to eventually charge even bigger bucks than whatever's on their list if they're trying to rent them. Right. And, and yeah, we have, we ha- we have become a part of a global speculative real estate market. Seattle didn't really used to be, but now we're like Tokyo, San Francisco, New York, Los Angeles, whatever. We're, we're at that level of investor interest because of all the money that's being generated here by all the big companies. So, um, so, th- so this is an effort to try to do something about that. Um, it, it's not clear that all of these things are legal. So, so that's one that they would still have to investigate. Yeah, I would just want to start and say that the reason why a lot of properties are vacant is because the clientele and the people that would fill the apartments are not consistent with the desirable clientele that the real estate companies want. And um, I was talking to um, Jay Jones, and we'll probably get more to him when we talk about encampment sweeps, but he was telling me about... Who's Jay Jones? um, He works with services, not sweeps. It's a coalition that is working to to ban encampment sweeps during the winter and extreme weather. And um, he was basically saying that, you know, it's, it's really harsh, but They don't want people in those apartments. The people that live in Seattle that really need them, they don't want them in there. And it's because, you know, we have a huge mass addiction problem. We have a huge behavioral crisis problem. We have a huge homelessness problem. And a lot of the people that are really in need of housing are not consistent with what real estate developers want as far as desirable clientele. And why are they owning real estate? Well... Because they want to make money, and being a landlord is is very lucrative, very lucrative. Um, being a landlord, you just you wait for people to go to work and make rent, and then you collect it, and then you can have your side job. You could be a CEO, you can have a family business or whatever, and you know still generate income off of not going into work and clocking in. Okay, so a possible vacancy tax. Um, and what about the jumpstart tax that that's, it's bringing in money. People keep tapping that. Yeah. Mm. So that's what we do around here. If we have, um, a revenue source, we either, it, it either comes in bigger than you expected, which that tax is doing. Um, we need to remind people this is a tax on, on high payroll businesses. Correct. But then everybody runs for it. They're like, hey, you have 300 million new dollars in there. If that, it's close to that, like, like David said, what about using it for our, our latest deficit that we anticipate? And also, I think in this conversation, one thing that has to occur is that we have to look at the nature of the deficit. Much of it is going to be for anticipated city salary increases. We can argue pro or con on that if you want to. And I think we have to ask how many different revenue streams this city has and add some of them up. Because, you know, every time you tr- we, we vote, we are the good voters of Seattle. They're so willing to be helpful to their fellow Seattleites. You know, we have a Roughly a billion dollars coming in for affordable housing, likely to pass this fall. We have uh, Move Seattle. I think that comes up next year. It was close to a billion. They're not going to come in lower. No, they're not. Mm-hmm. You got the beverage tax. I mean, just add up all the de- dedicated streams and ask yourself, is there anywhere here we could spend a little less? And I know that's um, not the most Seattle thing to say, but there it is. And I'm glad you brought up the beverage tax because I want to talk about that because these individual tax revenue streams are also in a deficit. And that's the big problem with it is is jumpstart funding is is used to fill those holes. And, and you can't just keep doing that. But also, we have to look at what we're already spending money on, you know, and I don't have the number in front of me right now, but... Like I said, we'll get to this when we talk about encampment sweeps, but there's we're spending millions and millions of dollars on a third party organization to basically conduct that work, you know. And so if you look at the budget and look at what we're really carving out money for, you you have to ask those questions about is this really necessary? And well, this here, and this work group did they didn't come up with spending cuts and that was kind of a complaint of the Chamber of Commerce, but they did say Cuts will be a part of this process, and one of the things they talked about was looking at you know do our does our current spending align with our current priorities? So priorities could change, or they could find areas where you know the spending just isn't really working, and so we might cut there. But they also didn't recommend that the city 
pick any one of these or proceed. No. And I think that there were some Seattle City Council members who were hoping that they would get that kind of support. But, you know, that's not that's not exactly how it worked out so far. Well, just this week, the city council approved a nearly million-dollar grant to reopen the Cinerama Theater. The city signed off on a bank loan for the new aquarium, which the Northwest Animal Rights Network calls an over-budget animal prison. Where is the, what, what is the city council going to cut back on? What spending are they going to reduce? So that's about $17 million of supplemental budget funding. So basically they're like, hey, revenues are coming a little higher than expected. Um you know, it's an interesting question, you know, I think from, say, the Chamber of Commerce's perspective, they're like, well, why don't you sock that away, put it towards this projected $221 million deficit? This supplemental budgeting happens every year. Yeah, so, but you just said the magic words. Revenues are coming in higher than expected. Why isn't that counted as part of this discussion? Well, let, we need to take a break here. I, w- I want to bring up one more city charge, which I had never heard of. Um, did you see the city is repealing an old license fee on instruments of amusement? Apparently, in the 1940s, Seattle wanted to discourage pinball machines mm-hmm. since they abscond with the coins of children. Uh, <laughs> and then so they imposed a pinball machine licensing fee that then expanded to dartboards, jukeboxes, peep show devices, mechanical horses, and, of course, Pool tables. Oh, oh, we got trouble. We're in terrible, <laughs> terrible trouble. That game with the 15 numbered balls is a devil's tool. Devil's tool. Oh, yes, we got trouble, trouble, trouble. Oh, yes, we got trouble. Give me a big, big trouble. With a tree. With a So obviously we get the young ones moral after school, but it's expensive for a small business person like the owner of the Icebox Arcade in Ballard who says he spends fifteen to 17000 a year on that fee, and it only brings in about $64,000 a year. So that fee is on the way out. Remember the main Plymouth Rock and the Golden Rule. It's Week in Review, <laughs> catching you up on where the money's coming in and going out and getting cut and getting raised. We are catching you up on the news of the week with my panel of local journalists here. I've got KUOW's David Hyde and political analyst Joni Balter and South Seattle Emerald writer Lauren Bray. We're going to take a short break and come back with more news of your week gone by. Don't go away. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR. This podcast is free and it's accessible to everyone thanks to support from listeners like you. If you value this show, please consider supporting its production by donating to our home, KUOW. It only takes a minute to give, and you'll be helping to support the production of this podcast. Make a donation at KUOW.org or follow the link in the show notes. And thanks. This is how it goes. Now we're uh, microphones off. We're, we're trading <laughs> stories about pinball gangsters. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> that's a real thing. Well, because I had originally heard about this in a YouTube video that um, Stephanie Harlow had did, where she was talking about some sort of um, like mystery game that was a legend or whatever, and she was talking about how pinball were w- they were banned and the tax on them, and um, how it transcended into arcades, and how it was a fear that kids were congregating in arcades, and there was, um, I guess rebel activity yes yeah <laughs> sounds like we got trouble yeah it's, kids are rebuckling oh. their knickerbockers below the knee well you know pac-man hit that button again you know <laughs> pac-man really riles me up too yes. so. <laughs> yes. when i play missile command who knows what i'm going to do okay so that's lauren bray from south seattle emerald we got Joni balter here david hyde david kow politics reporter david hyde we've just had some primary elections for cities and counties and school boards. And in Seattle, we've been hearing so much lately from residents saying they're fed up. Could you tell the fed upness by their votes in the primary election? 
Uh, you know, there's some disagreement about that. I would say for the most part, not really. And I'll look at uh, District 6, um, the Ballard area, as an example of that. Dan Strauss, the incumbent, did pretty well. He'll be facing uh, off against Pete Hanning, head of the Fremont Chamber, former bar owner in the general election. Pete Hanning ran a campaign kind of based on crime and public safety and ended up about 20 percentage points behind um, Dan Strauss, you know, in this primary. Now, there's name recognition. There's all sorts of factors. But you could say that this result suggests that folks in the Ballard area aren't super exercised and unhappy and angry about the direction that the city council has been going in. Um, you know, maybe, angry but people are maybe when it comes to, to public safety, I will say I was out talking to folks on, on Election Day, as I like to do, and it's not a scientific poll, but. A lot of people told me they were concerned about crime. I heard that kind of going into this and public safety. I hear it all over the city. Mm -hmm. And yet what they think we ought to do about that differs. Who they think they ought to elect differs. Um, And the only other thing I'll say is I did hear from quite a number of people who I said, um, you know, who'd you vote for? And they're like, I was I was reading that. um, The stranger. Yeah. Yeah. The stranger. (laughs) And um, I voted for. um, Dan Strauss? Yeah, Dan Strauss. <laughs> was some of that. And and no diss. I mean, people are busy. They're at the beach. I, you know, I get it. Um, but th- but that's a factor. And so I think in some ways, OK, 20 points in, in the primary, but that's just a poll for now. And we don't really know for sure what's going to happen in the general election. And, and also, mm-hmm. let's point out that Dan Strauss was one of the votes for defund the police. And there was said, no vote to defund the police. But yeah, yeah, I hear what you're he saying. He said he was for the vote. Open, so to, the, seven open, to, exploring. open to exploring the possibility. Open to the exploring yeah. the possibility. And everyone like yourself is still running away from that. But anyway, yeah. ooh, ooh. and I love you, David. But, um, but anyway, <laughs> back to Dan Strauss. He did send out a mailer that said defund was a mistake. And he said it like mistakes were made. I don't necessarily know who made that mistake, yeah. but, you know, so he did run from that. And many of the incumbents were either silent on that topic or or ran from it in, in different ways or ran in circles in the case of, of one of them. So, you know, I we feel free to disagree, but public safety... Um, is still going to be the number one or two no, topic and, and, in this in the in November, and if you're looking for sort of what happens next and who's going to talk about what next, you know that many people, many of the of the challengers and a couple of the incumbents are going to talk about how big is the police force? It's down nine forty seven, lower lowest in decades. What mm-hmm. is going on with homicides? They're up quite yeah. a bit. Uh, how do you feel in your neighborhood? What was fascinating to me about the neighborhood and how folks feel in the neighborhoods is there was a poll in June that said most people feel, you know, pretty good. They're fine. And then there was another poll that sort of went the other way and said that sort of something like one third of Seattleites are thinking of leaving the city. And then one third of that was because of concerns about public safety. I hope I quoted it right. Mm. Now, more people vote in the fall than the summer primary. Does that mean a we should expect a more liberal general election result or not? That is that is the traditional uh, line on it, but it, it that is that is the traditional line of late on these um the way the, the way the trends go. I don't really know if that pans out every time lately. Do you David? I, I, I know this. I mean the primary is a really good poll in a lot of ways. It's it's, it's, it's because it's it's right. a lot of people compared to what your average poll would look like. So it tells you an awful lot. And if incumbents get over 50%, as Strauss did, most people feel like, hey, that's he, he may well win re-election. And the question is, how much money now is going to be supporting some of these challengers in those races? Of course, we've got, you know, four open seats. And so there's going to be a lot of turnover on the council. So I think there's a lot more questions than answers. I will just say in response to Joni, I completely agree that that Dan Strauss mailer sort of contains the question of public safety in it, right? With him sort of standing there with his arms folded saying defund the police was a mistake and not making it clear that, you know, what his position had been. So he kind of got slammed uh, to his left and to his right for that. But your average voter out there might just see that and, and think, take it at face value and kind of not know that whole backstory. So it's a little hard to know you know, a smart campaign mailer, probably, it's a little hard to know then how to read this and how to know what voters are going to do in the fall. But um, obviously, I'm pretty excited to find out. <laughs> well, here's one, here's here's an issue that might come up. Um, 
South Seattle Emerald reporter, Lauren Bray. You've been following this debate over homeless encampments. Some people want the city to keep its policy of letting people stay in uh, tents and vehicles, too, in the wintertime. Yeah, because from what I understand, the policy was um, put in place during COVID to kind of ban evictions during the winter and COVID, really, because of all of the issues that we were having socioeconomically. And um, essentially, there's no policy that's going to replace it. So when it times out, essentially, there's nothing that is going to protect people from encampment sweeps, evictions during the winter. And um, a lot of people don't know that it would extend to just like evictions, not just people on the street in in encampments. Also apartment evictions. Yes, also apartment evictions during the winter, because essentially what you're doing when you evict somebody during the winter is you're not caring where they're going. You know, you're just saying you can't pay rent, get out of my building, right? So where are they going to go if they can't pay rent and they have that eviction on their record, they're going to be on the street in an encampment. So and then if you also have are doing encampment sweeps, then there's really nowhere for people to go because they can't even put up a tent on the street anymore. So and will you remind listeners why some people would first of all, as a matter of some people would rather stay out of shelters, even Mm -hmm. in the the cold and the wet. And Mm -hmm. then you have the question of what's what's even available. So it's not even just they would rather stay out of shelters, because when I was talking to Jay Jones, the the person who who works with the Services Not Sweeps Coalition, um, he was telling me that um, there's just not room. And when so essentially when they do those sweeps, they have referrals that they place to homeless shelters and they will place a referral for every single person that they sweep off the street. But if there's no space in a shelter for all of those referrals, where are those people going to go? So it's essentially you're sweeping people off the street and not putting them anywhere because we don't have shelter spaces. And that's a whole other thing, you know, that um, opens a whole other can of worms about why there's not enough spaces. Also, there's a whole issue of safety in general in shelters, depending on who you are um, in in your background. A lot of you know, trans people don't feel safe in shelters. A lot of LGBTQ plus people don't feel safe, safe in shelters. A lot of women don't feel safe in shelters. A lot of black people don't feel safe in shelters. And there's reasons why for all those uh, different demographics. So people would rather, you know, have something of their own. You know, you pitch up a t- I've, I've driven in the car. I've seen, you know, people's encampments and I've been like, this is a whole community because it's not just one tent. I'll see several tents, people living together very communally. And I'm like, if this was actual shelter, that's a beautiful, you know, way of of um, living. And um, I had also talked to Katie Gendry, who also works with Services Not Sweeps, and she was talking about, you know, her uh, uh, revolutionary ideas for like housing and and just this communal way of us all living together, and how that would just kind of make quality of life better for everyone. So there's there's a lot of dreaming there. So. Yeah, I, I feel like the conversation is really necessary, and I feel like the policy should should definitely be put in place and replaced. Great job on this story. I really, I really learned a lot about how it works when you, you know, if you're in extreme weather or not extreme weather and how the shelter is offered. And I had actually assumed that we already banned sweeps in extreme weather, and I wasn't sure about the full season of of winter. So what do, what do they do? Is it temperature driven? Is it you know uh, length of a cold snap or something like that? How do they um, you know how will they do something in an El Nino year, which we're supposedly facing? Like maybe there won't be any extreme weather in this in a kind of winter that we think is coming our way. Well, I'm not too familiar with the exact guidelines and I'm not sure I'm not sure that they exist really, but you know, for me I would like to think you know when it's too cold to be outside and you know when these extreme weather events are coming. You know, Seattle is known for having rainstorms and snowstorms during the winter, you know, the whole sunny you know, California perspective that we have of the West Coast does not exist up here in the Pacific Northwest. So I think we we all know when extreme weather conditions, you know, come up. So I think it's, it's part of having that humanity of like, you know, would you walk your dog in this weather? Should somebody be living on the street in this weather? You know, if the answer is no, then the answer is no. Yeah. And I think those questions and this question of sweeps could be an issue in the Seattle City Council races. I loved your story and saw another story in the South Seattle Emerald that I think was a a real change story where they asked city council candidates, should we ban winter sweeps? 
Um, they didn't get responses from everyone, but in uh, District 1, which is West Seattle, climate activist Marin Costa said, yes, we should ban winter sweeps. In fact, we should ban all sweeps. Mm-hmm. Um, her opponent in the general uh, tech lawyer, Rob Saka, didn't answer, but he's been kind of closely so- associated with Mayor Bruce Harrell and associates his positions with, with Harrell's. And Harrell, of course, has stepped up sweeps uh, mm-hmm. you know, since the pandemic. And arguably, he won on the issue of sweeps in 2021, which is almost a referendum on the question of sweeps. So it'll be interesting okay. to see. I mean, we're sort of already seeing that 2023 is a, is a different year, um, possibly. And so who knows? But I, but I do think, you know, it's going to be something that people should be talking about in these races and certainly in the debates. Let's hope that, uh, you know, this comes up. So I live in uh, District 2, and I interviewed um, Tanya Wu at length about about a lot of these topics. But specifically, we talked a lot about sweeps. And, you know, I think it's really going to be an important— Tanya Wu is uh, is a community activist in the Chinatown International District. That's right. Thank you. And she's um, challenging incumbent Tammy Morales. And they may agree on— on more stuff than you think. But I think what voters there will be asking is if both candidates can be very specific about what their positions are. Uh, In some of my interviewing with Tanya Wu, I did not feel like I actually knew what what she was advocating. And so I bet, predict, that that, uh, those those positions will sharpen as we go forward if, if, if Tanya thinks that she has a chance against Tammy Morales, who did pretty well by the time the final votes came in. And we mm. didn't even see those till what, late last Friday or even Monday of this week. So, yeah. Okay. Um, well, let's pause there. The election day is November 7th. That's our election deadline around here. Um, so you can spend your summer and autumn getting caught up on your local races uh, beyond city of Seattle. We are bringing you the news of the week. I'm Bill Radke hosting Week in Review where uh, you're listening on the radio. Maybe you're watching on YouTube and Facebook. Just search KOW Public Radio. And we're going to come right back with Joni Bolter, Lauren Bray, and David Hyde after this short break. You are with KUOW's Week in Review. Politics reporter David Hyde is on my left. South Seattle Emerald writer reporter Lauren Bray on my right. says where we're sitting. A political analyst and contributing columnist Joni Balter. Uh, catching you up on the news of the week. And David, you reported... You reported on a lot this week, David Hyde. Did you say I'm on your on your left or your right? I can't remember which it was. Well, I'm trying to (laughs) answer this from your from your left's point of view. Yes, I'm just in a room with some people. Yeah, Uh, Um, and uh, this you reported on the city of Seattle about to offer a first of its kind protection to gig workers. In fact. Council City Council member Lisa Herbold told you that people who work for Instacart or DoorDash can get unfairly dinged for stuff they can't necessarily control. Workers can be deactivated without receiving any notice or any reason at all. Often that is a result of algorithms that include little to no human review. How do you get algorithm deactivated for something. What, what's this about? Yeah, and it's very science fiction-y, isn't it? You know, you're, mm. you're sort of deactivated. <laughs> Apparently, the worker goes to log on oftentimes and just finds that they've been terminated. You don't call it fired because they're gig workers. They're not technically employees. Okay. Um, but what workers told the Seattle City Council, it sometimes could be happening because they were delayed a bunch of times for reasons beyond their control. Or when the bridge was out to West Seattle, they were like, I can't do that. This uh, this this app is telling me it's going to take 20 minutes, but I know it's going to take an hour. So if you refuse enough orders, you might get deactivated for that reason. And the new law basically says the company has to have a good reason um, to deactivate folks, which is which is an interesting development, given the fact that we live in a right to work state. So many of us can be fired at will, essentially, for any reason. But these workers now, you know, there has to be kind of specific reasons, uh, you know, um, um, and they have to give two weeks notice, um, although there is an exception that was made. There were a number of exceptions made. So if um, if a, a worker commits an egregious act, let's say they're threatening people or are risked to customers, then they can be terminated um, immediately, apparently. And I will say one more thing, which is that businesses still had some objections. It ended up being a six to two vote because of that. 
some concerns about privacy, for example, like if you're a customer making a complaint and it's a very small business, let's say a pet sitter that's only got five customers, even if they anonymize that data, could that could that person figure out who had ratted them out or whatever, turned them in, and then retaliate. So that was one of the objections to this um, to this piece of legislation. But passed six to two, and Bruce Harrell's expected to sign it into law. I really feel for the gig workers. You know, how many times have you sort of downloaded somebody's story when riding in an Uber or Lyft, and, and you understand who these people are? They Sometimes they'll take a phone call from a family member, and you just, you know, these are many times immigrants just struggling to make it in this in this country. Uh, a gentleman killed a few days ago uh, in Soto in the middle of the night was was a um, I think a, I think an Uber or Lyft driver. Mm. Um, a carjacking in Soto. Yeah, carjacking. Thank you. That said, we don't know exactly what the numbers are here. We don't we don't have that information. We don't know how big a problem this is. You're going to hear the business community say, "Can't we fire?" Uh, whoever we want that's not a good employee. What it feels like is missing from this is what you started with there is you can just sign on and everything has happened while you were asleep or, you know, or driving or something. Why isn't there more process? There needs to be more process. If, If somebody complained about me at work, and either I deserve it or I don't. But I would like to hear hear what happened because there's so many misunderstandings with people filling in, you know, after ride, as an example, after ride summaries. Oh, it really went horrible when, like you said, it had absolutely nothing to do with the driver. You know what getting around Seattle is like. You hit stuff you that, that even, you know, the best app didn't tell you was going to be there. So I really wish there was a, a, a forum for... Um, the process that goes with this. Yeah. And also David mentioned that there's like an algorithm component to it. And I had written an article about this, um, about AI technology and the bias that they're finding when they're doing tests on basically how the processing works. Right. And um, if you read my article, I write way more eloquently about it. But basically, AI systems are mimicking human bias. And you would think that you know, humans who are biased, they're making technology, the technology would also be biased. But there's a lot of ignorance around how that's kind of transcending into the AI technology being used. And it sounds like this is one of those instances, because if it really is, you know, immigrant workers and people who are lower on the socioeconomic spectrum, that speaks to the discrimination and the bias that, you know, might transcend into the algorithm. So that's alarming. Well, I assume these non-human judgments and firings are just going to get more ubiquitous and easier. What, if, it's not, if it's not the worker's fault, they have no control over delays. Why would the company want to fire them and have to retrain someone else who has no control over delays? I, don't, I, don't, I guess I don't really understand the gig economy. Well, I, as someone who's ordered Uber Eats, I would imagine that it's probably someone who's probably stuck in traffic or they can't find the right order and the, the person ordering it is reporting it or canceling the order. And it's happening to that specific worker so many times that they just decide to terminate the work relationship. That's what I can imagine happening because a lot of those instances where people cancel orders because they it's late or whatever have you, they have anxiety about the person running off with their food. Yeah. Well, and, and this builds on a lot of the progressive legislation Seattle has already um, passed for these non-unionized gig workers um, raising the minimum wage. There's sick pay now. And we're really on the cutting edge of, of a lot of this stuff Thanks to, I think, a lot of successful lobbying by a group called Working Washington, which is, you know, really with its allies on council, working hard on this type of legislation. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, the other stuff you hear on the other side of this, um, of these issues, will be small businesses, uh, restaurants basically saying, we're partners now with DoorDash or whatever. And so if their costs go up or if or if employees aren't. Uh, performing successfully, that's kind of hurting us and our bottom line. I don't, you know, I don't have any way of adjudicating that, but it seems like we're moving in in the direction of basically saying worker protections, sick pay, things like that are basic um, needs that these workers have. And that's that's what yeah. we're going to do. 
Well, there's only one thought about that, and is, is this first in the nation? Um, we can be proud of that because we are protecting people who are vulnerable. But you also have to wonder how much a sort of labor agenda comes to Seattle and says, let's try this idea in Seattle. You know what? Have you have you counted the votes on the city council, what they're likely to be? I mean, without knowing sort of what the backside of it is. And so that's that's just one concern that I've heard in my reporting. All right. We'll see. So the mayor's going to sign this. So Seattle's going to find out. Right. How how it goes. Yeah. Okay. Um, we got, and, it's, we, and it's more job security if you're thinking about uh, getting into Instacart or DoorDash as a as a career. It's you know there, there's I'm not getting better at hosting this show. If, I'm not know, saying it, my <laughs> skills are eroding, oh, and there's other job. things I can do. Side job to hustle. Okay, so um, speaking of hustling, let's say you're hustling to get where you're going, and uh, you can see you know. I don't really have to stop at this light. There's a better way, David. I've never, I'm not saying I've never rat run before, but I had not heard the term until you told me about it. What's rat running? What's the problem? I had neither, but apparently Washington State Patrol, this was a Como story, so credit to Como, uh, is seeing an increased trend in rat running. I, I, I didn't see a lot of data to support that necessarily I saw in the, it the story. Other day. Uh, you saw some rat running going I saw on it the other day. I was, like, <laughs> was it in your car or a different? Car? <laughs> it was not me. Okay, all right. <laughs> it was the car, two cars in front of me, and I was like, "This must have been what David was talking about." I, so I had thought, and I did a poll in my house, a household of three, uh, a, a young driver and two old drivers, and we all thought it was illegal. But apparently, it's not in Washington State. Mm-hmm. It's not in Seattle. It we need is, to tell listeners what the practice of oh, rat running is. Yes, yeah, terrible. Uh, this is a driver. <laughs> cutting through a gas station, a 7-Eleven parking lot or whatever to, say, avoid a red light or just bad traffic or whatever. And as traffic increases, you can see the incentives maybe there. Some of us have oh, maybe absolutely. done it. It was a shell. I saw somebody cut to a shell. It was on airport uh, way. Right. <laughs> but is that illegal? Can, can I? Well, so not in Seattle, not in Washington State, but it is in Edmonds, Linwood, Bellingham and some other cities. So uh, you're taking your chances if you rat run, Bill. I I want to start with a confession because not knowing the term until I saw the list of stories for today, (laughs) my husband and I, we were rat running just last evening. And and even though I said, hey, let's not let's not do this. uh, It was too late. And there was like one car getting through a left turn lane every light change. Yes. And this occurred. And so I start. With my confession. Was it a parking lot or a gas station? It was a gas station. I, I, think, I think it was a shell just worse. like yours. Isn't it? Because but did you at least drive slowly yes. through yes. and yes. then Very. pause a moment to briefly yes. consider it's... buying a gallon of gas before you remembered yeah. that you're not going to do that? Well, so you <laughs> know what? Okay. Also, Act like you're maybe eyeing the prices. Yeah. This is also, you know, Seattle growing a, and and its population, you know, skyrocketing. This I've seen this like crazy on the East Coast. And Me and too. I hadn't seen it here, and it's obviously part of like we could have infrastructure discussion here because mm-hmm. the roads, at least in this one case and many others, couldn't really accommodate the cars. The lights weren't set properly; they just weren't. They weren't and, set to let you through Me, in the through. manner that no, you- <laughs> but, but but for a lot of people, honestly, that's why you'll see an increase uh, okay. because. Uh, it's hard to get around, and the roads can't really. Some of the roads can't really handle all the traffic. I just want to make sure we find out why do they call it rat running? Oh, okay. So I consulted. I I, I went down a rat hole uh, <laughs> Thank you. Uh, on Thank Wikipedia you. and elsewhere, and found that it may have originated in England. And so I consulted a British friend of mine who confirmed that over there, you know those. Um, Taxi cab drivers will they, – they're, they're highly skilled apparently yes. in London. So rat running refers to taking local roads to get where you're going faster than the average you know, human who's just taking the regular arterial routes. Then like a, a rat in a rat runner. Yeah. <laughs> so everybody's a rat runner, runner when it comes to that if they, <laughs> yeah. if they can, right? Um, and, you know, and they've got windy roads over there because they didn't have the grid and the planning and all so that. So is it like a rat in a maze that has figured out how to get there How to get out. That's fast yes. enough. I think that's, that's it. the imagery. That's yes. it. I think that is it. It's also called rodent running, apparently. That's another okay. uh, so well, that's not just a little rats. more British. Yeah. No? Rats are smart and they know the fastest way to point a – from point A to point B. I was also thinking, though, isn't there sort of a moralistic finger wagging yes. element to it? Like you're a rat. Yeah, you're doing well, it's it. judgmental as heck. Very, very loaded and so, dehumanizing. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. 
to the I'm rats. I'm not sure we sh- to <laughs> rats. You know what, Bill? We are a long way from the zipper, your favorite traffic merging system. Oh, the zipper merge. Yeah. I know. I'm trying to no. pass that on to my kid. We are on not a long way from the end of this show. We have two and a half minutes, and I always want to make sure we have some uh, take some time to say, did anything make you smile this week in the news? I'll do one. As as sad and tragic as everything that happened in Lahaina and Maui, the banyan tree that is so famous in Lahaina. I've been to that banyan scarred, tree. Sorry, sorry that for the tourism, but I did that. Scarred, <laughs> but it's still standing. And I don't know why, but maybe that gives some of those people hope that they can come back and recreate the town they loved. Yeah. I hope so. Lauren, anything smile-worthy? Yeah. <sighs> It's going to be slightly nefarious, but um, mm. I went to see Paramore two nights ago, and it was their last show. They canceled the rest of their dates on the tour, so I got to see them the for the last time show. in a while. How was Paramore? Oh, my God. Haley Williams and everybody else, of course, but phenomenal. Her voice is amazing. Yeah. Nice. Hey, David, what's, what did you smile at? Uh, today is the return of English Premier League soccer. For oh. soccer fans or football fans. And also, just how great the soccer has been at the Women's World Cup, despite the U.S. exit. The Just watching it as a fan, I mean, it's just fantastic. It's it's really uh, – I'm, I'm riveted. Well, listen, that, that's my, that's my uh, entree because Ooh. my smile was – is Seattle soccer star Megan Rapino on Sunday at the World Cup missed a crucial penalty kick, which she almost never does. And her reaction was a was a bitter laugh, which drew outrage from Fox News outrage correspondent Megan Kelly. Can you imagine the Miracle on Ice hockey team laughing after they lost? They wouldn't. They they took it so deadly seriously. They understood they had on the stars and stripes, and that the entire country was watching them. She's able to laugh. It's all about her. They refuse to honor the country. When Rapino was asked afterward, why were you laughing? You missed the shot. You lost the match. She said, because, quote, this is like a sick joke. For me personally, this is dark comedy that I missed a penalty. End of quote. And I think this is an example of America's irony divide. And I must say, I stand with the elites who perceive the human condition to be a tragic comic absurdity in which our theoretical inability to explain contingency leaves us in bemused anguish as the ordinary structures imposed on existence collapse. If that's not a country music song, it should be. And I feel like that's (laughs) what Megan Rapinoe was doing. And that made me smile. She Mm. She can see the big picture even after she screwed up. Laughter is a stress reliever. Come yes. on. Mm-hmm. Right. We've all been there. Self-sealing. Ironic, like like rain on your wedding day. <laughs> yes, exactly like that. Jagged yellow pill. We got to go. I mean, it's, it's like the clock is at zero. Um, we've been catching you up on the news of the week and giving you something to smile about. Thank you, South Seattle Emerald writer Lauren Bray. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Political analyst, contributing columnist Joni Balcher. Thank you so much. And thank you. KUOW politics reporter and absurdist David Hyde. <laughs> thank you, David. Thanks, everyone. That was fun. Yeah. The show's produced by Kevin Kinestad with help from Juan Pablo Chiquiza and Tio Popescu and Bernard Ouellette on the board. And I'm Bill Radke, and let's do it all again a week from now on Week in Review.